Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is so nice to have you here. I hope you are having a really beautiful, fabulous day. We are chatting today more in depth about a topic that we keep alluding to, but we haven't really done a deep dive in a minute. We're talking about money, we're talking about finances, we're talking savings and stocks, and ESG, what does it mean to be a socially conscious investor? There is so much value in this episode. It is so purely educational, and I even say that at the end of our conversation with Amanda Holden. Amanda Holden is an investing expert who teaches people about financial literacy and investing and everything you've ever wanted to know about your money. She's committed to closing the gender investing gap, and she hosts these really awesome, really no BS workshops online. And she also coaches folks one-on-one on how to get their money right and get their financial literacy and their financial health in check. Amanda Holden is someone who I was really attracted to on the internet because of her graphics and her approach to money. And she is so wildly smart about everything that she talks about, but she does it in a way that is like a big sister mentor telling you, get a grip. This is what we're talking about here. This is all you need to know. Don't overcomplicate things. Following her alone has helped me get very clear on what my goals actually are when it comes to money. And then also what I just don't know. There's so many words that get thrown around when it comes to financing or investing or retirement accounts that we touch on a little bit today that have always been thrown around. And I've been someone who's been like, you know, I guess I kind of know what that is. I guess I'm investing because I have this retirement account, but I actually don't know where that money's going. During the pandemic, like a lot of people, I got super into like the Robin Hood uh, moment and I got really interested in trading and I got really interested in like stock market day to day. But quite frankly, I don't know what I'm doing. And talking to someone like Amanda helps me figure out these words that I've been attracted to, what they actually mean, what I'm actually buying. And when it comes to socially conscious investing, there is so much nuance that at first I just understood myself to say, I'm going to be buying a high ESG stock or this ESG fund because these are generally understood to be socially conscious companies. And then today, Amanda and I talk a little bit more deeply about why that's not always necessarily the case and kind of the greenwashing that can go on in the stock market and in the investment space in general. I feel like I had so much to learn and I still do have so much to learn about investing 101. Like what do all of these vocab words and buzzy words mean? And then when it comes to what I actually want to prioritize as a young girl, as a young investor, what are my long-term goals for my money? There's so much decision-making that has to happen and also getting to know myself really well and getting to know my goals really well in order for me to be a smart investor. So there's just a lot to talk about. I feel like I've kind of been talking in circles, but long story short, the uh, too long didn't read version, money is scary, money is confusing, and Amanda is here to break it down for us and to help us all get a little bit more comfortable whether or not we consider ourselves socially conscious investors. I know you are going to get a lot out of this episode. I know you're going to really enjoy it. Also, if you enjoy the show, don't forget to rate and review. You can send it to a friend. You can post it on your story. You can tag me at Podcast on Instagram. All my links are always in the show notes. Like I always like to tell you, I want to hear from you and I want to know what you want to hear more of. And I also have a little favor to ask you. I shared this last week and I'm just going to keep bugging you. I would really love your feedback on our end of the year eco chic 
survey. I'm calling it the wrapped, eco chic wrapped 2021, you know, like kind of like the Spotify wrapped. What are your favorite things about this show? What do you like to hear about? I just want to gauge your feedback and figure out what is valuable to you and how I can keep improving this show into the new year to keep delivering and to keep evolving with y'all and making sure that I'm actually producing content that we want to listen to. So if you have five minutes, it's pretty open-ended and it would really, really help me out a lot. So I'll link that in the show notes as well. And I really appreciate your feedback. There's also a little surprise at the end if you do choose to fill it out. So thank you in advance for, for that, for chatting with me about how to improve this show. I think that's it for housekeeping announcements today. So let's just jump right into the episode. We're talking today about savings, stocks, ESG, all about money, investing 101 with the very brilliant Amanda Holden. Hope you enjoy. Amanda, welcome to Eco Chic. Welcome to the show. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of our conversation about socially responsible investing, I want to hear a little bit about your background and how you got interested in finances and investing in general, because I am just really in love with the way that you present your information. I'm sure you have a great backstory. Oh my gosh. Well, I would say that like, I did not get interested in finance and investing. You know, what I did is I graduated from college and I needed a job and I ended up with a job in investment management after graduating from school. And so I worked for six years in the industry and, you know, my primary role at the firm was to be a face person for our high net worth clients. So basically I was on the phones and meeting with clients um, answering questions about their strategy, the stock market, um, keeping them apprised of portfolio changes. You know, the way that I like to describe it is I was basically doing a lot of handholding with old rich white guys all day. And so it was, it was a really good job for me as a young woman. I was one of very few women in my department. I was the youngest by quite a bit, but I also kind of hated it. Um, turns out kissing the asses of rich men isn't really my vibe. And so I ended up quitting that job and I thought I would leave finance altogether. But you know what I kind of ended up deciding, I kept coming back around to this idea that you know I've been helping all of my friends, all of my girlfriends learn and understand this information. And so maybe, maybe my work here isn't done. And so I, I did decide to come back and start an education-based business, um, teaching women how to invest, really teaching anybody to invest who has felt left out of these conversations, because so often these conversations are reserved for people who are already wealthy. And I saw that firsthand. And um, those aren't my people. And so, yeah, so now I do what I do. My business is called Invested Development, but I do my free investing education on, in the usual places on on social media, on Instagram at dumpster.doggy. I love that backstory. And honestly, I don't blame you for not wanting to hold the hands of rich white men. I think that low-key sounds like a really hard position to be in as a woman. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was in, in a work situation where I had you know, clients that did not want to work with me because I was a woman. I had bosses that 
openly openly disliked me because I was a woman. I, you know, had to deal with harassment from my coworkers. And so just, it was all around not the right place for me, which is, it's too bad that, you know, somebody like me feels pushed out of the industry because that's not fair either. But luckily the experience that I had working for the firm has given me this, you know, this base of knowledge that I can then share with people and do my best to, you know, just make it so it's not so intimidating. That's really what my goal is with my business is to make it so it's not intimidating and not so crusty and dusty and boring, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. I was saying earlier, I love your delivery. You're very no bullshit and you really know your audience so well. And something that I want to dive a little deeper on also with you, because you are speaking with women and you are speaking with a lot of individuals who probably have no otherwise understanding of investing. What are some of the very basic misunderstandings that the women you work with have about investing in general? Sure. And what I would say is that these are misunderstandings that everybody has, (laughs) not just women, women just tend to be who I educate the most, but no, that's what I always tell people is nobody is born knowing this shit, right? Like nobody like slides out the womb knowing what modern portfolio theory is. That's just not the way it works. Everybody has to learn. And I would say the first major gap that I see in understanding is I heard you mention earlier, or maybe we were talking uh, before we were recording about, you know, investing in a retirement account or in a retirement plan, for example, one that you have through work, like a 401k, 403b, and so on. What a lot of people don't realize is that that money is being automatically invested in the stock market. Especially if you are a young person, you have a long investing timeline, you, you know, have the time to take some investing risk, your 401k, or again, your other workplace retirement plan may be automatically invested for you. A lot of folks think that like, for example, a 401k is an investment, but that's not quite right. A 401k is a bank account, a special fancy ass bank account that holds investments like mutual funds, which are big baskets of stocks. And so when we're doing education, we always kind of need to start there and first separate out what is an account. You know, a 401k is an account. A Roth IRA is an account. You know, what you open up at Robinhood is an account. A brokerage account is an account. Those are not investments. The reason we have retirement separate is because if you invest for the long term within one of these account structures like a 401k, Roth IRA, 403b, TSP, and so on, then you are getting some sort of tax benefit. And so if you're ever like IRA, 401k, WTF, what's going on here? Why are there so many? Why is it so complicated? Well, it's because I mean the IRS does this to us basically, um, but you do get some sort of tax benefit if you invest within one of those accounts. But when we're actually talking about investing and what is going to actually producing a rate of return, it's going to be generating a rate of return or growing in size. The idea with investing is to buy something that's either going to be paying you or growing in size over time. For many of us, that means an investment in the stock and bond markets, probably with a higher proportion of that going to the stock market. And so that's the first thing. And so let me take a breath there because I know I just said a lot of words. Do we want to talk about what a stock is? Absolutely. That was going to be my next question. 
What is a stock? (laughs) Sure. So a stock is just a teeny tiny little sliver of ownership in a company. So for example, you could own one share of Google, or you could own one share of Bumble, or you could own one share of SeaWorld, right? It's a company and basically ownership is chopped up into oftentimes millions of little parts that then regular folks like like us can go in and purchase. The idea being that as the company grows, as it expands, then so does your little piece of that pie, right? You can think of it as a proportional piece of your pie. Another word, uh, like a hot tip for you, especially if you're somebody that's trying to look at your 401k uh, or look into your 403b and figure out, am I being invested in the stock market? They are often also referred to as equities because you now own equity in that company or in many, many companies. And so you are proactively being invested, again, into what we call the stock market, which is just a big old marketplace for these shares of company ownership. Wow. That was a very eloquent description of stocks and the stock market, because that's a word that I've heard my whole life. And I thought I understood what stocks were. And I feel like as I grow and as I try and educate myself more on investing in general, that is one of the biggest misconceptions that I have. And I think this is also an awesome place to talk a little bit about socially conscious investing, because when we talk about the stock market and we talk about ownership in companies, that's you investing in this company and you saying, I believe in what this company is doing and I believe in their growth. So when we talk about socially conscious investing, I think that's a really fascinating place to say, how am I voting with my dollar on a larger scale? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, what we call in the world of investing, what we call socially conscious, we usually use, well, you'll hear two different acronyms. The first is socially responsible investing. So SRI is the acronym. Another acronym that we're using to describe socially conscious investing is called ESG. And so ESG is used as a way to describe, again, socially conscious investing, but what it actually is, is it's the screening criteria that we use for those companies and their stocks for which we could be invested in. And so ESG stands for environmental, social, and then governance. And so basically, if you think of like whatever company and their stock that you may want to invest in, you know, what you could do is you could see it or try to see it through the ESG lens. And don't worry, you don't have to do it. There are ESG screeners out there, but just envision, you know, you taking a step back and being like, okay, from like a scale of like good to a bunch of overpaid executives murdering sea turtles, like where on this scale do we land? And we look at the company through the ESG criteria. And so for example, environmental is, is this company working to eliminate carbon emissions? Are they a green company or are they a fossil fuels company? So for example, Exxon would score very low in the E portion, the environmental portion of ESG. Then social is just what are these companies, what is this company's social values, right? What is their role in the communities that they exist within? So for example, a company that is maybe a defense contractor or a weapons manufacturer would score very low on the S, the social piece of ESG. And then last is governance, which means who's in charge, 
who's in charge of this company? Is the board diverse? Are there women? Are there people of color? Or is it just you know, a bunch of old white dudes in suits. And so if you do not have a diverse board, then you would, um, and then leadership as well, um, people in higher ranking positions within the company, then you would score low on the G in governance. And so what we see nowadays is that ESG is just used as a word to describe an investment that is looking through this criteria and somehow, some way using this information that we can procure from an ESG screener to make better decisions about what types of stocks you're being invested into. And so I think what's also helpful to understand here is ESG can be used to describe or to screen an individual company and its stock. ESG can also be used to describe a fund. And so when we're investing, one of the easiest ways for investing for you know, for most everybody, honestly, like whether you're just getting started or you have a little bit more experience, a really easy, you know, low cost way to invest would be to invest in a fund, whether it's a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund. A fund in investing is basically just a big old basket of investments. And the fund can be a big old basket of stocks. It could be a big old basket of bonds. It could be a big old basket of real estate holdings. The fund is just what is bundling a bunch of investments together. And so if you are buying an ESG fund, basically what you are buying is a fund that is trying to put together a bunch of stocks that in some way, somehow, are going to have better ESG scores than if you were to just like say invest in the entire market. Because if you invest in the entire market, then what do you get? You get everybody, you get the oil companies, you know, you get your Amazon, you get, you get everything. I have to first say, I love watching you get fired up as you discuss these topics. Like you have just such chutzpah for oh. this. I love it. And <laughs> I also think it's really interesting to talk about ESG mutual funds because I didn't really realize that ESG was not one score, but rather a score on environmental, a score on social and a score on governance. So it's three ratings. And then they usually merge them together to make one total score. Super score, the ESG. Exactly. Super score. Interesting. So if you are looking at a company that perhaps does great environmental work, but not, they don't have great like ethics or great uh, diversity in the company, they could still have a very mediocre ESG score. Exactly. Interesting. So if I am a keenly environmental consumer, and for whatever reason, I care less about the ethics of a company, I would need to do a little bit more deep diving into seeing that particular E score. Yeah, absolutely. And most of the ESG screeners are going to show you a breakout of their score in each of those three categories. And so for example, well, and I, I, what I should say, because you touched on an, an, an interesting point there, which is that ethicality is subjective. And there are ESG screeners out there that are trying to do the work of giving a company a score. But you also have to imagine that somebody is creating that scoring system and that person is subjective or that company is subjective in some way as well. And so even between different ESG screening systems, you may see a company that has a different score because there is no universal ESG standard because there is no universal standard for ethicality. And so, for example, 
you know, MSCI ESG is probably the most, MSCI is the company and they make ESG ratings. They're probably the most commonly used, but they're not the only, right? There are other companies that do ESG screening. So for example, there's one called Arabesque S-Ray. There's one called, oh my gosh, you reap what you sow, I believe. I might be wrong on that. We'll, we'll include all the notes to, to the, the actual screeners in, in the podcast. In notes. the show notes, I will definitely share. Yes. Thank you. And so, yes, yeah, so even across the board, there is no one universal score for, for ESG and, or, or system for scoring with ESG. And so just like with anything, what you want to do is just like dig a little bit and see exactly, you know, take a look at the score, but then look at why, right. And, and make sure that it then matches up with your own set of ethics, because we always are going to have to push, you know, any of these inputs, any of this information through our own lens of ethics. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big believer in the deep dive research before I purchase anything, even on the investing apps. I get really nervous that I am being tricked for whatever reason. And I think that stems from all the greenwashing that we see in the general consumer market. So whether it is just like a leaf icon on a cleaning product that doesn't actually do anything better for the environment or the clean beauty movement, a lot of those brands are really great. And a lot of them are just capitalizing on the movement. So that also makes me think, is there something similar? Is there a greenwashing that goes on within the stock market? Absolutely. And, you know, this is something that I have a big conversation about with any of my students that take my workshops, because if you decide you want to go the route of ESG investing, because you simply do not want to ever profit from, let's say, fossil fuels companies or defense contractors, and it's going to make you sleep better at night, then you can certainly do that. That being said, I am a firm believer that there is no true ethical consumption under capitalism, and therefore there is no such thing as as true ethicality in investing under capitalism. And what you'll see is that even when you invest in one of these ESG funds, you're still investing in in a lot of naughty babies. Before I even get into this, let me just clarify that even within ESG funds, the, the methodology for using ESG to pick stocks to put in this fund are going to vary a little bit. And I almost think it's easiest to think of, is this fund playing offense or is it playing defense? So defense is the most common way that you're going to see ESG being used. Like, for example, you may have heard this term index fund before. An index fund can be, it can be in mutual fund form or it can be an ETF form. Index refers to stylistically who's choosing what goes into this fund. And really all it means is that this fund is just trying to match the market. It's trying to mirror some market, most commonly the US stock market. And so for example, an S&P 500 index fund invests you in the 500 largest company stocks in the United States. Now back to what I was saying about playing defense. So often what you'll see is you'll see like an index fund that is what we call negative screened, meaning that it's going to keep mirroring the the US stock market or whatever market it's trying to invest in, but it's just going to negative screen out the, the worst of the worst. So again, your fossil fuels companies, Weapons manufacturers, defense contractors are, are really the primary ones, but you know, may also screen out like tobacco companies, porn companies, which is like, leave porn out of this. But, 
but so this would be negative screening, right? And so if you are simply negative screening out the worst of the worst, then what does that leave? That leaves a lot of companies that I would argue are not ethical companies, Amazon being one of them. Another being, for example, um, a lot of the, the mega banks like JP Morgan Chase, which if you look at JP Morgan Chase's banking practice, they are the single largest lender to the fossil fuels industry in the world, but they would be included in one of these ESG funds. And so if we want to start to get a little bit more direct in our ESG investing and not simply screen out the worst of the worst, then what we need to look at doing is you know playing a little bit more offense, right? Where there is somebody, usually a manager, actively picking which companies or stocks they think are going to not only perform best, but who are held to some ESG or ethical standard. And so when we go this route, we get a little bit, maybe we get like a a little bit closer to whatever it is that our collective vision of ethicality is. But the flip side of that is now you are paying somebody to make these decisions for you. And whenever you are paying somebody to actively manage, actively manage is the inverse to index, an actively managed fund or portfolio or whatever it is, you're paying them a fee and that's going to come right out of your potential returns. And so the other thing that we have to consider when we're ESG investing is, you know, what feels best for us from an ethical standpoint? And then also what is best from us from our personal finance standpoint. And, you know, I come from an industry where I have seen firsthand just how much unnecessary fees can erode a person's performance over the long term. And so, you know, I, because I work with, you know, women or other groups that have been disenfranchised by our society, I also encourage them like, hey, if, if you decide you don't want to go this route, um, if you just want to do some like regular index fund investing, um, we are not probably going to be changing the world with which fund we choose. And if you feel like you want to prioritize your financial health right now and just, you know, again, use a regular fund as opposed to an ESG fund or use one of these negative screen ESG funds which are going to be lower cost in nature as well, then that's okay. It's okay. That is a very comforting thing to hear. Again, especially coming from this perspective that maybe I am falling for greenwashing when I'm buying these funds. Maybe I'm spending too much time reading the fidelity descriptions of each individual ETF. Like how, how deep can I get into all of these decisions before I finally make them and just put my money somewhere. And I think the other frustrating thing is from a young person's perspective, like I haven't been working all that long. I've been in the professional world, like four years and I'm like, okay, I finally have this little, this little egg of money that's going somewhere. And is that where I want to be putting my values? But it's also like, I have my whole life ahead of me and my whole working career ahead of me to be investing in my retirement and investing for fun, quote unquote, and like learning a little bit more. So I think thinking about it from such a long-term perspective is also both intimidating and very humbling because it's like, I know that I'm investing in companies that I believe in to some extent, but I also want to prioritize my health and my financial health. And how do I make the best decision for myself, especially from this retirement perspective for the next, you know, like 40 years? I think that's, that's kind of scary. 
Yeah, it, it is kind of scary. And, and I'm sure that this is controversial. Um, I don't think that anybody who works in, in an ethics or a climate justice space thinks that there's only one answer to solving our crisis by any means. But I do tend to believe that if we are really going to change these companies, it's going to have to come from a couple of different angles. Perhaps the most important is legislatively, right? For example, closing tax loopholes for oil companies, getting money out of politics. That would be really important for us as individuals to fight for. I do also believe that it's going to come from the demand side, right? Like if we're, if we're all using Amazon and if we're all using fossil fuels, then ultimately those companies' stocks are going to perform well we are not going to be able to punish them really from the stock side. Um, I would say that you know, due to the popularity of ESG, companies are taking notice, knowing like I'm, I am or I'm not going to be included in this ESG fund. But at the end of the day, with the way that the market works, you know, for every stock you don't buy in Amazon, somebody else surely will. Because what we see is you know, with investing, what investors are often looking for is underpriced or undervalued stocks, we would say. And if we all try to punish Amazon from the stock side, and because of it, the price takes a dip, there are plenty of hedge funds on the other side that do not give a shit about ethicality that are more than happy to buy that stock. And it ultimately kind of evens out in the end. Whereas if you don't buy a subscription to Amazon, somebody else isn't going to come in and buy that subscription for you. And so I think that, you know, especially when it comes to investing and making the best long-term decisions for us as individual investors, I'm really okay, you know, with, you know, my students keeping it as, as simple as possible, knowing that there are, are, are other ways out there that we can express or fight for the world that we actually want to live in. Wow. That was so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. I have one final question and I do not mean to solicit investing advice from you, but as a regular student trying to learn more about the market, if I'm looking to buy like one mutual fund or one ETF or one whatever, what would be like an industry that you really believe in from an investing perspective? Well, so I, I think that if you're just getting started, I would even take a step back and not try to choose an industry. When you are buying an index fund that invests you across the whole market, some of the beauty of that index fund is that it's going to invest you across all, not only all companies in that market, but then also all industries. And so therefore, whichever industry it is, that is ultimately going to be the next industry to blossom or to have a really good decade, because we see these things kind of shift in and out of favor in ways that are really difficult to predict. And so investing in a more broad way across the market is a really great place to start. So for example, looking into purchasing a total U.S. stock market index fund. I'll say that one more time. A total U.S. stock market index fund. Each bank is going to make their own version. So Fidelity makes a version of it. Vanguard makes a version of it. Charles Schwab makes a version of it. And just starting with an investment across the entire U.S. stock market is a really great place to start. And to start to gain comfortability with investing in the stock market, which is a journey, right? It's 
it's been mostly up. Well, it's been a lot up actually over the last 12 years, you know, 2008, when I first started working in investment management is when we had the last big crash, but crashes will absolutely happen in the future. And so what I always tell new investors is get yourself invested in a broad way, but then the next most important thing you can do is understand how the stock market works because now you are along for this ride and it is not again, intuitive. For example, if we experience a stock market crash, and let's say that we see the value of the fund we just bought loses 30% of its value. So like, let's say that you had invested $10,000. You're so proud of your first $10,000 invested. And we see a 30% dip in the market. Well, your $10,000 is now worth $7,000. Nothing is permanent until you sell, until you sell those investments, you still own the same amount of companies. It's just that the market is currently valuing it at less because that does happen from time to time. And let, let me even ask you, Laura, if that was to happen, what, what would your immediate reaction be? I think my immediate reaction would be to just wait it out. Okay. So you're already a pro and you know what to do. Oh. Women really are so, so, so good at this. So, you know, what we have seen historically is that, you know, what happens is it almost becomes a little bit self-fulfilling in that when the market takes a, a big tumble, people then start to sell, they start to bail because they essentially want to stop the bleeding. And usually when we are in a market crash like this, it's also being surrounded by economic panic all around us. And everybody's saying, this is what we're going to see the death of the economy of stocks of everything. And so what people then do is they, again, they sell out to, to make sure that they can protect that $7,000 from any further loss. And the way, the way that the market works is all of the selling is what causes the price to drop. And all of the buying in is what causes prices to move higher. It's basically supply and demand happening in real time. And so anytime there's a market crash, it's quite literally happening because we are bailing out, right? Like, I, like what I always tell my students is the call is coming from inside the house, y'all. Like we, we did this. And that's a little bit of an oversimplification because, you know, there are basically trip wires in either direction um, set up by algorithms at quant funds and hedge funds. That's getting a little bit too much into the weeds. Point is, you see in the stock market years that are really great, you see years that are just kind of nothing and you'll see years that are really bad. But what we do see over longer periods, like 10 years at a minimum, but 20 years is better. 30 years is even better than that. 40 years is better than that, is that you start to see the market move higher in a reliable way. But on a short term basis and a year, even five years is a short term time frame in the market. You could get some negative years. And the worst thing you can do is sell when we are in a crash, bail out of your investments, right? That's the absolute worst time. Don't sell your investments when they're at their lowest point ever. And in fact, what we need to do is train our brains to think a little bit differently, right? Let me put it this way. Would you rather buy a house for more expensive or less expensive? Less expensive. Would you rather buy investments in a business for more expensive or less expensive? Less expensive. Less expensive. And when are they less expensive? When we're in a during crash. A crash. During exactly. a crash. Exactly. And so you kind of have to train your brain to think differently about what is good and what is bad. 
where does opportunity lie? It lies during the darkest of periods when we're talking about investing. That being said, I'm not encouraging that you like hold on to your cash, wait for a crash, just invest consistently over time and then stay completely unbothered when the market does crash. If you are able to continue to invest, to capitalize on any potential opportunity moving forward, but don't let it sway you from your resolve. And so that was a really long answer to say, I think that the best thing to do to get started is to actually invest in a really broad way and then start to understand how the stock market works. What can you expect? What are long-term patterns? What should you be doing to be the best investor you can be knowing that you can't control it? right? Which is basically just sticking to it month after month and then remaining cute, remaining unbothered by the market itself. And then once we get there, once we get that foundation built out, then we can maybe start to to look at doing more industry specific types of things or investing. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you so much for walking through that with me, because I think, again, from my perspective, I'm like, well, if I want to be a conscious investor, I have to pick an industry that I really believe in, or I have to pick something with a really high ESG rating. And that's not necessarily the case at this stage of my life or at anyone's beginning stages. So I appreciate that great example. Thank you so much. And and, and I will say, I, I don't want to be discouraging from using an ESG fund, like even using something like an ESG, like a total US stock market ESG index fund, If you prefer to do something like that to get started, which is going to basically do the same thing, invest you in the whole U.S. stock market, but leave out the oil companies, then that's also a really great place to get started. And you will be on a very similar journey. You will still be invested in the stock market. You know, what these funds don't do is they are not trying to um, help you avoid negative periods in the market when you're invested in an index fund or really most funds that invest in stocks, you're now along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. You have to play the long game. Consistency is key. Exactly. Love it. Love it. Wow. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for your time and sharing all of these great tips. And it wasn't even necessarily tips. It's like pure education. Thank you so much for this really valuable conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eco Chic. I hope you got just as much out of our conversation with Amanda as I did. And if you have stuck around this long, rate and review the show, share it on your Instagram story, send it to your friends, send it in the group chat. And don't forget to please, please, please fill out my survey. It will be in the show notes. I feel like I should call it our survey because it's really how you are helping improve this show long term. I'm really looking forward to planning episodes for the new year and just finalizing our guests and finalizing our special segments like book club and chic shots. And I want to know what you want to hear about. Like I said, shouldn't take longer than five minutes. And there's a little surprise at the end if you choose to help me out. So with that, thanks again for tuning into today's show, but just being a part of this community and showing up and enjoying the show and being so good. I don't know if I say it enough, but I love you guys. I'm thankful to have you on this uh, little corner of the internet. I hope you have a great day, and I look forward to chatting with you next week. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.